what we sing about together, what we pray about and who we pray to and what we acknowledge and remember when we come to the table is obviously only made possible because of the gospel that unites us all. There's a lot of diversity in this room. There's a lot of diversity around the world and through eras. And yet, as Christians, we are united by something that is so much bigger than all that can potentially divide us. We would never want to forget that, that gospel of Jesus Christ, that we were helpless in sin, separated from God because of our rebellion, because of our imperfection. And God sent his son, who was perfect, to die for sinners, to pay for your sin and mine, and he rose from the dead, defeating death. And by believing in him, we have eternal life. We never want to forget that. And that becomes, it's always important, but becomes so increasingly and palpably important when life is threatened or comes to an end. Over the past couple of months at our church, four individuals from our church family, their faith has become sight. We looked at, uh, we were at uh, Lee and Ken Mitchell's funerals as of late, and, and Verla Keller recently, and then this week John Kasha went to be with the Lord. And we grieve, just like in the book of Acts, how when Stephen is stoned to death, devout men take his body and let out a great lamentation, knowing that they will see him again, knowing that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so grief is appropriate, and yet at the same time we rejoice because they are with him. And because Christ rose from the dead, like we celebrate and remember at the table, he is the first fruits of the resurrection that will happen, that we too will rise because he has risen. And so before we go to the word this morning in Matthew chapter 5 and continue on our study in that gospel, I want to spend some time in prayer, um, thanking the Lord for that truth and then praying for the families of those who are grieving significantly right now. Please bow with me. Heavenly Father, what we just spend time remembering and how Steve led us to the table so appropriately. We thank you for that truth. We can't thank you enough for that truth. That Jesus became sin for us. That he died a sinner's death. And he raised from the dead. We thank you for that truth. We thank you that through faith in him, we have hope in the future, hope of resurrection, hope of eternal life with you in your presence in paradise, on a new heavens and new earth. We thank you for that. We thank you for the comfort it brings us now. We thank you for the endurance it gives us now. And Father, we want to pray now for members of our church family who their faith has now become sight in the past couple of months that they breathe their last in this world and then in a moment open their eyes in your presence and they are rejoicing and they are pain-free and they are whole. We praise you for that reality, knowing that unless your son returns quickly, we will all one day experience what they have experienced. As a church family, we do want to pray for their families, though, that remain behind. We pray that you minister to them, Father that you be to them the God of all comfort and peace and grace that you've promised to be. Father, for their family members that do not know you, that don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, Father, we pray that through this tragedy, out of the ashes we rise, that they would rise up and put their faith in Christ, that beauty would come from this grief. 
And we know you specialize in that, Father. And so we ask as the people of God joined in spirit and joining in hearts, we beseech you, please bring them to yourself. For family members that do know you, we pray that they know your comfort and your presence like never before. Again, Father, we thank you that we can even pray these prayers to you. We know that's a gracious gift from you. And we ask that you would remind us by the power of your Holy Spirit that as the days go by, as the weeks go by, and as our lives return back to normal, but those who grieve, their lives are not going back to normal, that we would remember them, that we'd reach out to them, that we would pray for them, that we'd check on them, we'd walk with them, carrying their burdens as you've instructed us to do. We ask this in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I ask you to turn with me to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 5. As we continue our study through Matthew's account of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we come this morning to what is probably the most well-known passage or well-known section in the gospel of Matthew. And this morning we probably come to what is the most well-known section of that well-known section in the gospel. So we come to the Sermon on the Mount, but today it's the Beatitudes of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 verses 1 and following. Now to this point, Matthew has introduced to us this long-awaited king, King Jesus. The nation of Israel had been anticipating him for a long, long time, and Matthew describes how he's been prepared and then introduced to these would-be subjects, the people that will be under his reign when he sets up his kingdom. We saw a couple of weeks ago that after his announcement by John the Baptist in chapter 3 and his authentication at at his own baptism and then how he is proven acceptable through his temptations. After that, he finally appears on the scene in chapter 4, verse 12. And when he comes, he's preaching a message of repentance, similar to that of his forerunners, John's. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's close. Be prepared. It's fast approaching. Prepare yourself. And he's actually speaking to the same audience as John did as well. Not only does his message mirror that of his forerunners, but the audience does as well. It's to the nation of Israel to whom he comes. It's that nation that has been longing to see this king and to experience the kingdom and to whom it's been promised in the Old Testament by God. Now the closing paragraph in chapter 4 of Matthew describes for us Jesus' ministry. What did it look like when he came on the scene? Well, it tells us in three verses that he comes teaching and preaching and, and healing. A ministry that, that brought widespread popularity, as we can understand. Immediately, people are gathering from all around, of all different stripes, to come and hear this exciting message and to experience, maybe even um, be healed by him, but to see all these signs and wonders that he's performing. And we come to Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, and it says, When Jesus saw these crowds, these multitudes that had gathered to see him, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them. And so we see that Jesus, as the crowds gather around him, he retreats a little bit and moves up the mountain to a high perch and sits down taking the seat and position of a first century Jewish rabbi, and he begins to teach. And it's important to notice who his primary target of these teachings are. It's the disciples, right? It says in the text that his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. 
While the crowds, no doubt, follow along, and by the end of the sermon, we, we see that he's addressing and he knows that they're around as well. His primary target for his teaching is his disciples. With the multitudes, no doubt, eavesdropping, but he wants to teach his disciples. And the question is, okay, what does he want to teach them? And what we find in this section of the scriptures that we're going to consider this morning is that he has two things on his mind in this paragraph, or these couple of paragraphs. The first, he wants to teach his disciples something about character. And secondly, he wants to teach them about their commission. So character and commission. First, he wants to instruct them on, on what they, as God's people, as his disciples, are to be like, their character. And second, what they are to do, their commission. And as we go through this section together today, we'll see that it's actually the former that fuels and enables the latter. So in other words, the character that they can develop enables the commission that they've been given. So as we begin, these disciples who are waiting, remember, waiting for this kingdom to come, and they feel like the king is here, they know he is, and so now they're waiting for the kingdom. They first have to, have to develop the character for the kingdom, or the character worthy of the kingdom that is coming. That's his first, the first item on the agenda that he wants to teach these disciples. Now the sermon begins, as I said, with what are often called the Beatitudes, which simply means blessedness. And as you read and scan through the section, you understand why it got that name. Right? Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. They're the Beatitudes. Now the word here, blessed or blessed, it sometimes carries a connotation of happiness. You know, happy are these people. But it, it probably is a little bit more than that. It probably more carries the connotation of congratulations or approved. It's God saying to these people, you are approved because of this. Congratulations because of this. It's a declaration and not something to be, to be aspired to. And as you scan through the Beatitudes, you notice they have a pattern to them. There's a cadence to them. There's a declaration of blessedness. And then there's a description of a character trait or a, a spiritual disposition, and then it's followed by a reward. Right? So every beatitude is a pronouncement of blessing. Blessed are the blank. People like blank. Why? Because they can look forward to blank, and there's a reward. And that's the pattern of these beatitudes that we follow. Blessed, congratulations, approved are these people because they can look forward to blank in the future. Now we need to remember as we go into these Beatitudes, because they're so well known, we want to remind ourselves who Jesus is talking to primarily here. Again, I'm going to harp on that over and over again. It's his disciples, those he has called to himself. At this point, we don't know how many are in the group. There's at least four, because we saw earlier in chapter 4 that he called four to himself. But there might be more at this point. But he's addressing them, his disciples, Jews who are looking forward to a coming kingdom. And Jesus here takes time to teach them the type of character that subjects of that future kingdom will possess and the joys they can expect. So let's move through this list. We'll go through fairly quickly. You're familiar with them. Because I want us to catch the emphasis of the entirety, the Beatitudes as a whole, and not necessarily every individual one. Verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here we picture someone perhaps on the street, homeless, who's asking for change, contributions from people passing by. That person has realized the helplessness of their estate and they have thrown themselves on the mercy of others. That's kind of the picture here spiritually. The poor in spirit are those who are spiritually destitute. You know, they're 
They're destitute to the point of begging for mercy. Uh, knowing that if it isn't extended by the only one who can really help, that's God. If it isn't given to them, then they're really in a lot of trouble. They have to throw themselves on the mercy of the one who can help. You need to understand in the context here, Jesus is, is telling these Jewish people that they can't be helped by things like temple attendance. It's not going to help them. By law abidance, by tithe paying, by prayer offering, sacrifice giving, or feast keeping. There's nothing meritorious in those things. You need to understand that you are spiritually bankrupt. You are destitute. You are helpless and must throw yourself on the mercy of the one who can help. Those who possess, who will possess the kingdom of God in the future, they know they are spiritually broke and must ask for mercy. I can't help but think here, maybe your mind goes as well to Luke chapter 18, where Jesus tells that story of the Pharisee and the publican. You know the story well. When he's talking about two people praying, and there's the Pharisee, the one who's kept all the law. He is righteous, right? He, he does what God wants him to do. And when he prays, he says, praise the Lord. I'm not like these sinners. I pay my tithe. I do what I'm called to do. Praise the Lord. And on the other side is the publican. And he can't even look up to the sky. Tears in his eyes. He beats his breast and says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's the, that's the poor in spirit. Somebody that knows their estate before a holy God. And nothing they can do can climb us closer to him on our own. Jesus says, blessed are them. Now you may notice here that the reward in this first beatitude is in the present tense. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. Now if you scan down the rest of the beatitudes, you notice they're all in the future tense. Right? They shall inherit. They shall be satisfied. They shall receive mercy. And we know from the context of Matthew that John has come, come along and said, repent. Why? Because the kingdom is here? No, because the kingdom of heaven is close. It's at hand, so prepare yourself. And Jesus comes along and says the same thing. He doesn't say, here it is. He says, it's close. It's close. And he sits down and starts to teach them. So we'd say, okay, so what's happening here with these present tense things? There is the kingdom of God. And he actually closes the Beatitudes with the same statement. He says in verse 10, when he comes to the end, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that closes the Beatitudes. So it's, it's bracketing with these present tense declarations of the kingdom of God, those who have the character that he's describing here. And I think all that Jesus is doing is something that we do often in English as well, even in the 21st century. He's using a present tense declaration to emphasize the certainty of a future realization. If after church today, someone came up and said, would you like to come out for dinner tonight with my family? I might say, because I haven't eaten for two weeks with Patricia being gone, I might say in excitement, I'm just kidding, I'm being taken care of. I might say, I'm there, I am there. Well, I'm not there, right? It's present tense, but I want to say present tense because I want them to know excitedly that absolutely I will be there that's what Jesus is doing here saying blessed are the poor in spirit why because theirs is the kingdom of God when it comes it is certain it is theirs they will inherit it now I think that's what Jesus is doing here blessed are the poor in spirit those who are aware of their spiritual bankruptcy why for theirs is the kingdom of God verse 4 it shifts to this future tense Blessed are those who mourn, 
for they shall be comforted. Just as we just prayed about, you know, it's appropriate to mourn for physical loss. Loss of jobs, loss of resources, loss of health, loss of life, loss of loved ones. In the same way, it's appropriate here, Jesus is saying, to mourn for sin. To mourn with the realization that we are spiritually destitute. It's, it's, it's right to mourn when we see the effects of sin in this world. Jesus says, those who mourn their sin and the effects of the curse in this world, good for them. Congratulations. Blessed are you. Why? Because it's you who will experience perfect comfort when the kingdom comes. Is there comfort today? You bet there is. Of course there is. In fact, we're given the Holy Spirit, and he's called the comforter, is he not? We are comforted now, but we await a perfect comfort in the future when the kingdom comes. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Verse 5, blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Or your copy of the scriptures may say, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The idea is, is one of godly humility and submissiveness. Interestingly, both, both Moses and Jesus are called this during their lives. They are meek. They are humble. They are, they are lowly, it might say. Biblical meekness, we need to understand, is not weakness, but it is strength under control. And it's perfectly exemplified in Jesus, is it not? We know that Jesus is the creator and sustainer of all things, that all things are held together in him, right? That means that while he hung on the cross, he sustained the nails that hung him there. That is power under control. He submitted himself to death even on a cross. That's submissive. That's meekness. And Jesus says here, approved are those who walk in willing submission to others. Approved, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the gentle. Why? Because they get the land. This is the earth. They inherit the earth. When the kingdom comes and the king reigns from Jerusalem, the gentle will reign with him. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I love that picture. For they shall be satisfied. You know, absolute spiritual satisfaction comes to those who now in this life hunger and thirst and ache to be quenched with righteousness and justice and godliness. Not only in this world, we see the world falling apart and, and a believer who's growing in the faith will ache for that. Oh, I want to see that made right. But also in our own lives. We see the sin in our own lives and we, we ache and thirst for, for righteousness. And those who do that, Jesus says, blessed are you because you will be satisfied. You will realize what you so long for. Verse 8. Blessed are the, sorry, bl verse 7. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Those whose lives are marked by mercy to others. That is not giving people what they deserve. That's what mercy is, right? You have the power to pay them back, but you stay your hand. Blessed are the merciful. They're approved. Congratulations to them. Because they will be shown true mercy when the kingdom comes. Do we experience it now? You bet we do. But when we come to the kingdom, when we stand before the Lord, we will understand what true mercy is is all about because it's then we will realize how far short we really fell it's only when we stand before the lord that we fear that we're in awe of that we will say wow i knew i was a sinner i knew that god extended mercy to me but i had no idea praise the lord for his mercy 
Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Purity of heart here describes integrity of motive. Psalm 51, verse 10, David prays, created me a clean heart, O God. Give me purity of motive. Blessed are those who live lives with pure motives, longing to bring glory to God and blessings to others. Why? Because it's those that shall see God with their own eyes in all his grand purity. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Notice here, it's peacemakers and not peacekeepers. I find that interesting. It's one thing to keep the peace. It's another thing to actively go out and try to make peace, to, to take it upon yourselves, to work for shalom. You may have heard that word before, that, that idea in the, in the Old Testament of, of wholeness. It's not just free from conflict. It's a wholeness as it should be. We're to be peacemakers, shalom makers. That's a tough one. Right? In a world so fractured, we are to be agents of that, seeking it out and trying to bring it about in the world around us. And it says, blessed are those, congratulations to you, for you will be called sons of God. In the Bible, when it talks about sons of something, it's basically taking the attributes of that thing and applying it to the person. The most obvious is James and John called the sons of thunder, right? Why? Because they were loud and obnoxious and they came and went, whatever that means. And here we're called sons of God. Why? Because we reflect the character of God. Blessed are you. Who's more of a shalom maker than God himself who sent his son into the world to create exactly that, to make it all as it will be? And finally, verses 10 through 12. He states the beatitude and then kind of expounds upon it in verses 11 and 12. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So congratulations approved to those people who are willing to endure opposition and abuse and ridicule and persecution for God's name, God's will, God's word, God's people. Good for you. Blessed are you. You're blessed because of the huge rewards waiting for you in heaven. See, when Jesus comes on the scene here, telling Israel to prepare themselves for the coming kingdom, he says, get ready, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then in chapter 5, he brings his disciples around him, and he says, I want to tell you how you can repent. I want to tell you how you can prepare for that coming kingdom. What it really looks like, it means establishing character for that kingdom. I mean, character marked by things like humility and mourning over sin and gentleness and the desire for righteousness and, and mercy and purity of motive and peace and conviction, conviction enough to withstand opposition. That's what character looks like, character that's worthy of kingdom subjects, which you will one day be. Now, I want to be very, very clear here as we come to the Beatitudes that Jesus is not saying that unless you check all of these character boxes, you cannot be saved. I want to be very, very clear. This is not a list of requirements for salvation. It is not a checklist to compare yourselves to get assurance of. Boy, I haven't been a peacemaker this week. I don't even know if I'm saved. That's not what this is. Salvation, justification, eternal life is not in view here. I want to be very clear about that. That's not what he's talking about. Instead, Jesus is laying out what can be called maybe an interim ethic. You know what interim is? Between two points, while you wait... This is an ethic that we put in place while we wait for what? The kingdom. 
He's giving it to the disciples. He says, I'm the king. The kingdom is coming. Be ready. And in the meantime, get ready and chase this character, this interim ethic. In light of the fact that the kingdom is imminent, those who are following Jesus are to pursue the type of character appropriate for subjects of that future kingdom. And to do that, we understand that we are blessed because the rewards are great. You know, it's like a a parent who tells their teenager, grow up, act like an adult. They're not saying that they are an adult. They're saying, start striving to behave in a manner that you will one day be. They will be adults one day. Strive for it now, right? Be like an adult now. Act like an adult because that actually improves the relationships of everyone around you, right? As you strive to mature. And not only that, but it prepares you for the adulthood that is imminent as well. And likewise, Jesus is saying to his disciples here, he's not saying act like adults, he's saying act like citizens of the kingdom. Not because you're kingdom citizens yet, the kingdom hasn't come, but act like it now and pursue it now because it's good practice for what's to come and it improves everything in the meantime. It's this interim ethic that Jesus is laying out for his disciples. And it's not only the disciples of the first century, it's us as well. This extends to you and I as well. We, like these original disciples, are being invited here to recognize things like our spiritual poverty, to to mourn sin like we ought to do, like God does. We can do that because we know that the comfort is coming, the comfort of the kingdom is coming. We talked about that last week, how knowing what's ahead allows us, frees us to pursue righteousness now. We should live submissive lives and ache for righteousness, especially in our own lives and homes. We're being called to be a people who progressively, by the power of the Spirit, are characterized by godly mercy and purity in our motives. One of my, most, my favorite and most influential seminary professors I had, he was, I think, 85 when I had him, godly man. And he used to say, if I do things 70% with clean motives, I counted a win. And here's someone so godly and mature to say, I'm still a sinner, I strive, I want to do things with pure motives, but at this side of glory, it's, it's impossible. So I counted a win to do things mostly for the Lord, knowing that there's some insipid selfishness that gets its way in there. But the point is, we are to strive in the interim to live out these type of character qualities because it glorifies God. We don't do it because it saves us. These things do not save us. No, only faith in Christ saves us. We strive for these characteristics because we know they will one day be so. We will one day have them, and because it honors our Savior and coming King. This is the character for the kingdom that he lays before them. Now in verse 13 of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus shifts his attention from the character for the kingdom to his subject's commission until the kingdom. This is what you are to do in the meantime while you wait. And Jesus moves from what his disciples are to be to what they are to do. This is their assignment while they wait for the kingdom to come. And while verses 1 through 12 are often called the Beatitudes because of the blessings pronounced, sometimes verses 13 through 16 are called the similitudes. The similitudes. It might even say that in your copy of the scriptures as a title because of how Jesus compares his disciples to salt and light. He describes them being salt and light, and that's the task that we are given going forward until the kingdom comes. Look with me at verses 13 and following. Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? 
It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So here we see in this text, application really built right into the text. He gives the Beatitudes, then he turns around and he says, here's what you are to do in the meantime. Here's how you live out that, that interim ethic. This is what it will look like going forward as you wait for the kingdom to come. You know, the disciples have been reminded of the character for the kingdom, and now they're given the commission until the kingdom. It's basically this. It's stay salty and shine brightly, isn't it? That's what we're called to do. Stay salty and shine brightly. That's their assignment, and that's ours as well today. First, it says to stay salty. He says, you are the salt of the earth. Now, there's many people who try to understand, what, did, what was salt used for? What is Jesus trying to communicate here? You say, well, it enhances taste of food. Right? So maybe as disciples, we are to enhance the flavor of the world as we go into the world. Maybe. Um, it preserves food. Right? Before refrigeration, they'd use it on meats so it wouldn't spoil. Maybe we're to go out and, and preserve what is good in a spoiling world. Maybe that's what he meant. You know, Luke chapter 14, and Jesus also uses salt as a, as a fertilizer. He communicates it being a fertilizer. It causes increased growth in the soil. So, I mean, maybe we're to go out and, and our presence allows for greater growth in the world around us for God's glory. Maybe all of those things. I'm not sure. But perhaps the real meaning is what those three things have in common. You know, as Jesus compares his followers to salt, maybe it's wrapped up in the fact that no matter how we use salt, its usefulness is determined by the fact that it is different from its surroundings. Right? Like it, it brings out the flavor because it's different than the potatoes, than the food. It preserves the meat because it's different than the meat. Right? It, it fertilizes the soil because it's different from the soil. It melts the ice that we're going to have in no time out on the streets because it's different from the ice. Right? The, the usefulness of the salt depends or it demands it being different. And Jesus himself says, what use is salt if it becomes tasteless, if it stops being salt? None. Except to be trampled underfoot. It loses its usefulness. It has to be salt to be useful in whatever capacity it's being used. It's a rhetorical question that he uses. And he says, no, no, you have to stay salty. And just like that with disciples. Disciples, how are we useful for the Lord? Well, it's when we act like disciples. Right? As soon as we lose our saltiness, as soon as we stop being like disciples, we become useless for his work. We're no longer useful. So he says, stay salty. He says, remain like my disciples. Act like my disciples. And, and how do we do that? Well, we actually look back up to the Beatitudes, don't we? Do we want to be different from this world? Do we, as Christians, want to walk into this world and be distinct? Well, I can't think of anything much more distinct in this world than people that mourn for sin in a world that celebrates and propagates sin and allows for sin. What could be more different than that as we pursue the character of the kingdom? To be gentle or meek in a, in a world that idolizes power. How can we be more different than that? How, how about showing mercy in the midst of a cutthroat culture? Making peace in a world at war with itself. You see, as we grow in the character, it allows us to be fulfillers of the commission given. That we are the salt 
of the earth when we act like the character befitting kingdom subjects. This has been tricky for the church over the last number of years. The church often panders to the culture to win the culture. That's been a strategy, whether said outright or not. And oftentimes it's with good motives. We want to win the world for the Lord, and so we want to be like the world just enough so they don't think we're crazy. They don't dismiss us outright. And so as the culture kind of veers away from the Lord as it will, the church for a long time has been chasing, you know, just being not exactly like them, but kind of alongside that we don't discredit ourselves. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. Be different from the world. Be different. That's how you are effective, is to be different. And right now, in our current day and age, as the culture really reaches a critical momentum going away from the Lord, the church has a prime opportunity to stand our ground here. As the culture goes like this, if we do not capitulate and stand for what is true, stand for characteristics that are outlined in the Beatitudes, we will be significantly different. We will be salt. It's a great opportunity. All we have to do is stand strong. All we have to do is pursue godliness and not chase after the world. Some people will say, but Paul, didn't he become all things to reach some people? He would be all things to all people that he may reach some? That's not what that means. That's not what he's meaning in that passage. He'll do anything to reach them with the gospel, but he doesn't compromise the gospel. He doesn't compromise godliness. So Jesus is saying, be salty. Stay salty. Don't lose your saltiness as disciples. And you can do that by implementing and pursuing the character outlined in these Beatitudes. Remain salty. Now, the second thing he says here is to shine brightly. And that's where he spends most of his time in this application, right? He says, you are the light of the world. We need to remember that this is coming on the heels of Jesus himself being described as light. Remember when he went to Naphtali and Zebulon? So the light showed up to them. They saw the light. And the light was the fact that he was bringing about the promise of liberation. The light showed up and they knew the kingdom is coming. The king is here. It's, it's, it's nigh. It's close. And now Jesus says, you are now the light. You go proclaiming the good news of the coming kingdom. You go proclaiming the light, the freedom that I bring. And don't hide it. Don't hide it under a bushel. Stand strong. Give light everywhere. Let it shine brightly. There was a book that got popular maybe two or three years ago that I read um, where the author in this book, he's a a Christian author, and he was describing as he saw the culture veer off toward godlessness, he said, a strategy for Christians today needs to be to pull back, to pull back the ranks, and to enter into a bit of an ark like Noah did, to preserve Christianity, and that the, the culture will kill itself, and when the floodwaters eventually subside, we can emerge unstained, we can emerge into this world, but we need to pull back. I've I find that really hard to reconcile with you are the light of the world. It's really hard to be salt and to be light if we are constantly pulling back. We need to be in the world to show light. We are up on a lampstand, right? We are showing this light of this freedom that Christ promised, the freedom the Messiah brings. We want to shine it brightly. So we're to be different from the world, staying salty, and then be in the world shining brightly. And when disciples do this, Jesus says, People may bring glory to God in heaven. So shine brightly. What an opportunity that we get to stand different from the world and not be antagonistic unnecessarily. We ask for discernment in that capacity. To be innocent and shrewd at the same time. But we don't shrink back. We shine that light. 
proud of the fact that we have been made different by Christ's sacrifice, by the indwelling Holy Spirit. We don't hide that. We don't minimize that. We are different. We are different. So these disciples here sitting at the feet of their rabbi and the anointed king, they're being told to get busy while they wait for the coming kingdom, to, to stay salty and to shine brightly. And the way they're able to fulfill that commission that they've been given until the kingdom comes is to pursue the character that is fitting for the kingdoms. And sometimes I, I worry and I wonder if, if Christians and as churches we get this backwards sometimes. And this is just a warning for us in this text. We get busy doing a lot of things but ignore character and ignore maturity and sanctification and growth that God wants us to, to develop as well. Imagine you went and got a new family doctor and you're sitting down for the consultation and the doctor says, I just wanted so badly to help people. That's been the passion of my life. I wanted so badly to help people, I just skipped law, uh, medical school. I couldn't wait. I didn't want to spend all those years in books and all that kind of stuff. No, I just wanted to help people. So I just decided to get busy. And you know, even now, I don't do any professional development. I don't do any research on the computer. I don't read about new developments. I don't do that because it's taking away from me helping people. If the doctor said that to you, you might be like, eh, I don't know, I might be looking for another doctor at this point, right? And yet Christians, we sometimes get tempted into that as well. I so badly want to help people. I so badly want to be around people that we ignore the fact that we need to grow as well. Professional development, we need to be rooted in truth so that we can go and be effective salt and light. Think of someone, a Christian, that is really struggling in this list of beatitudes. They look nothing like this. How effective are they at being salt and light? They don't look a whole lot different from the world at that point, do they? No, we want to be very different. You know, when, when Christians want to fulfill God's commission, the commission he's given us here articulated as being salty and shining brightly for him, we first need to pay attention to our own maturity and sanctification and, and growth and character development. We have to do that. They go hand in hand. So I want to encourage you this week, you know, as, as we think about how, and I, I know that when you hear the admonition from Jesus to, to stay salty, to be different from the world, and to shine brightly in the world. I know this church well enough to know that you are all like, I want to do that. I've seen your hearts for evangelism. I know how you share the gospel. I know your desire to help people. I, I love that about this church. And some of you might not even know that. I, I'm privileged because I get all the stories. I get the phone calls. I get the emails. Uh, you know, where people come and they say, you know what I got to do this week? I got to share this with my neighbor. Man, I've been praying for this person for so long. That happens weekly, at least, for me in this church. So there's a heart to reach people in this church. I know that. And that's something to be celebrated. We praise the Lord for that. But this week, let's not stop doing that. We don't want to stop doing that for this. But let's think, am I growing in the character God is calling me to as well? Am I growing in my maturity? Most, most businesses, most professions, they have built into them some form of professional development, right? A PD day for teachers, whatever the case may be, where they're still growing in their craft. What is your professional development this week? Do you have something in place with intentionality where you are looking at your spiritual life and saying, I need to grow. I need to keep growing. I want to challenge myself. And that could look so many different ways. In fact, that is really the goal of the church is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. We've said that over and over again, Ephesians 4, that we are to build one another up, 
right, in, the, in Christ. So we can't be whipped around to and fro with every wind of doctrine. We want to be strong. So how can we help each other do that? What is your professional development for this week? What are you doing? I had a coach back when I was a, a youngster in sports still that this coach was famous for saying, listen, guys, every single day, do something for your growth as an athlete. And practice doesn't count because your opponents are doing that too. Everyone's doing that. Every day, think, what am I going to do today that makes me better as an athlete? What a great thought to think for as a Christian. Every day I wake up, what am I doing today that brings me close to the Lord? What am I doing today that grows me in these character traits fitting for the kingdom? What am I doing today that in turn makes me increasingly salty and shining brightly? What am I doing today? We don't want to ignore that sanctification part. We've been saved, praise the Lord, but we want to grow in our maturity in the Lord so that we can best serve him here and now and best be rewarded in the future. Let me pray together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for help for these things. This is a hard, hard lesson at times because to grow is to be rebuked at times. You said in your word that it's inspired, that is breathed out by God and useful. All of it is useful to train us, to equip us in what we need to do. It's sufficient. But we know from experience, even just studying it together as a congregation, as we come to the text, sometimes we don't like what we see staring back at us. It's a mirror. And and so growth in godliness sometimes shows us our wretchedness. So we ask that you give us grace this week to look into the mirror and to ask ourselves and to ask you to show us where we can grow. How can we mature Father, we want to be salt that functions as salt. Whether that's be causing growth or preserving or adding flavor, whatever you have for us, Father, maybe even melting the hard hearts of the people around us. Whatever you have for us, Father, we want to be faithful in that. But we know we need to stay salty to do it. And we know that the pursuit of godliness, the pursuit of Christ-like character does that in us. So I pray that you help us to do that even this week. That you convict us of it. Not because it saves us, it doesn't, but because we want to be useful to you. We pray that as individuals, as homes, and as a church family, you would continue to work in our midst that we may shine brightly for the gospel, the hope that we have, the truth, Father. The truth that, especially in times like this, people are seeking for because their self-dependence, their self-reliance has been stripped away and they're facing their own limitations. And yet we know That you are limitless. When we face our limitations, we turn back to you and we worship you for your limitlessness. But not everyone has that privilege yet. And we know people in our lives that don't think like that. So, Father, we want to minister to them. And so we pray that you would give us the discipline and the courage to shine brightly in the circles of influence that you've placed us in. Knowing that as Jesus warned here, there will be persecution. There will be opposition. But blessed are those who endure that persecution because of conviction. We pray for your help to do that. As a church, as families, and as individuals, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.